Happy Mother's Day to moms and also welcome guests if you're here just uh, celebrating with your family for this holiday. Um, welcome you to Heritage if you haven't been here before. Um, we are making our way through 1 Corinthians, um, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and we are considering various church challenges that he addresses in this letter. We're basically taking three chapters or so for each challenge. We've looked at three challenges so far in the first seven chapters of this book. That is the challenge of division in the church, the challenge of immorality in the church, and the challenge regarding marriage. And so last week we began the fourth challenge, which is the challenge of Christian liberty. And we considered what Christian liberty is and how it's to function in the church in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, which we're going to consider this morning, Paul holds himself up as an example of what he's asking the Corinthian church to do. That is, be one who's willing to surrender their legitimate, God-given rights and freedoms for the sake of helping and serving others. So love is the dominant ethic here. It's that we should consider in all of our behavior how it's affecting our brothers and sisters in Christ and be willing to give up those things, even those good things, those legitimate things that our conscience would allow us to participate in if it would help serve our brother or sister in Christ. So Paul's going to hold himself up as an example of that in chapter 9. He's not just asking the Corinthians to do something he himself is not willing to do and that he himself has not proven that he's been willing to do over and over and over again. Paul often doesn't commend himself for very many things, but he will commend himself and his example if it's a boasting in his weakness, if it's something that shows Jesus to the people. And he's trying to show that just as Jesus gave up his life and his rights for us that we might be saved, so I'm willing, Paul says, to give up my rights for you that you might be saved and might be helped and might be served by my ministry. So we're going to consider three things this morning in chapter 9. We're going to see Paul's rights that he legitimately has in the first six verses. Then we're going to turn to Paul's reasons for those rights that he has in verses 8 to 14. And then in verses 15 through 29, the verses that Larry read for us, we're going to consider Paul's refusal to have those rights, that he gives up those rights for the sake of the Corinthian church. So let's look first of all at the rights that Paul has in the first six verses of chapter 9. First of all, Paul writes and reminds them again of who he is as an apostle. We read in the first three verses the following. Am I not free? That means, as I, am I not free to be paid, as we'll see? Am I not free to take a salary from the gospel? But he's going to explain that as we go along. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? That is, someone who has been commissioned directly by Jesus to be a missionary, one who goes out for his name to plant churches? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, which was a requirement to be an apostle? Are not you, that you Corinthians, my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal, the evidence of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So he's an apostle, Paul says. He's a sent one of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the resurrected Jesus on the Damascus Road and was commissioned by him in Acts chapter 9 to take the gospel to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish world. And he did that. In fact, he planted the church at Corinth. 
which was an expression of his mission as an apostle. In Acts 18, we read about Paul planting the church at Corinth, where he preached the gospel, he saw people converted, and he planted the church. And he reminds them that this is proof that he is an apostle. The proof of his apostleship is the fact that the Corinthians are a church, (laughs) that the Corinthian church exists, and they are writing to him, seeking his counsel on matters, like we saw last week with food sacrifice to idols. They're looking to him as an apostle, and he's reminding them, hey, just remember this. And then in beginning in verse 4, he begins to describe some of the rights that should accompany him as an apostle. Look at verse 4. He says, do we, that is we apostles, not have the right to eat and drink? Now, he's not talking about do we have the right to have lunch, dinner, and breakfast. He's talking about are we not free to take an income whereby we may purchase food and drink? Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? So there we see the importance of Christians marrying Christians. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? Peter was married. The first pope had a wife. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So they have a right to eat. They have a right to marriage. And they have a right to be paid for their labor to be able to support their family to eat and drink. That's Paul's point. He says, is it not a right that we would have to be paid for our labor? That as I labored to plant the church at Corinth, I worked as a tent maker in Acts 18. He had a a part-time job while he did it. And he did that, as we'll see, for their sake, so that he wouldn't put a stumbling block in their way that he was just doing this to be paid by them. So he took a part-time job, he planted the church at Corinth, he says, but as apostles, we have the right to take along a wife, to eat and drink, and to be supported for the labor that we do for the Lord. So that's his rights, very quickly, that he states them. Secondly, let's look at Paul's reasons. What, is, what are Paul's reasons that he gives for why he should be paid as an apostle? Well, he offers three common everyday life illustrations in verse 7 to support the idea that he has the right to be paid for his ministry to them. Look at verse 7. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Imagine if the United States military did that, right? How many active participants would we have if, if the military, all four branches, reached out to the United States citizenry and said, We need people to serve in the military you got to pay your own way, though. What? I'm serving as a soldier, giving up my time, my life, and basically giving myself over to you as a slave to do whatever you want me to do, and I've got to pay for it? So that's Paul's logic. That would sound ridiculous. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? In other words, who's a farmer that never eats anything that he's grown, but just gives it all away to other people? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. So he's just using everyday illustrations from the military, from farming, from raising cattle, sheep, things like that, to show that it is a right of someone to eat of that which they labor for, to to benefit from financially for what they labor for. Now, on what basis does he have these rights? Well, while common sense and these everyday illustrations are helpful... What's most important is, does God's Word teach this? Not just, is it common practice in the society, 
But what does God's word say about people being paid for their gospel labor? Well, and he's going to quote Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, in verses 8 through 11 to show that the church should respond by being financially generous to those who teach them, that this is part of what Scripture teaches, this is part of what God says. Look at verse 8 through 11. He says, do I say these things on human authority? In other words, am I just appealing to everyday examples of military and farming to prove this? Does not the law, that is the law of God, the Old Testament, the Torah, say the same? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, and here he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? So, again, Paul's taking a principle here. He's not denying the literal interpretation of Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. It really did just apply to oxen. Hey, treat your oxen well if they're working hard for you. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 24 when Moses writes those things. And it applies immediately to the livestock of Israel. But Paul sees a principle here. The principle of providing for someone who works hard for you. And so he takes that principle and he shows that if oxen should be fed when they are working and treading out the grain, not muzzled, to be kept from eating... So how much more should be the case for those who preach the gospel, who work hard at planting a church among you? And so Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4 and applies it to Christians, applies it to the Corinthian church, and yet, interestingly, he says later in this chapter that he's not under the law. You notice verse 20 and 21? He says, to the Jews I became as a Jew, we're going to get to this here in a moment, in order to win Jews, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. So, what do you mean, Paul? You're saying, I'm not under the law, and yet I'm putting the Corinthians under the law here? By quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, and saying, hey, you should do this? What's going on? So are Christians under the law? Are we not under the law? What's going on here? How do we make sense of this? Well, even though believers are not under the Mosaic law, that is the law of the Old Covenant, as a covenant, the words in the Old Testament still constitute the Word of God, and they speak with authoritative wisdom for us as believers under the New Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant, as a covenant, belonged to the Israelites in a previous era of redemptive history, and therefore things associated with that covenant, like circumcision and food laws and elements of Sabbath, are no longer binding for the people of God. But that doesn't mean they have no application whatsoever to how we live. They, they offer wisdom to the Christian for how we function in the church. So in addition to everyday life and scripture, Paul points to the fact that the Corinthians were already supporting other ministers. Look at verse 12. He says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything or anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Let me, let me back up just a second. Go back to verse 10. Notice what Paul says about this quotation from Deuteronomy 24. Does, not, does he, that is God, not certainly speak for our sake when he talks about muzzling an ox? Doesn't he mean us too? It was written for our sake, Paul says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
If we have sown spiritual things among you, that is, if I've preached the gospel and planted the church at Corinth, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we have any more? See, he's saying others have come in and had a rightful claim to, the, to financial support from the Corinthian church. They're laboring for the Corinthian church. Could be other apostles, could be present pastors. They've come in and they've labored among them, and they've, the Corinthian church has recognized this and given them support. And he's saying, well, should that not also apply to me? But notice he also, not only quoting the Old Testament, but saying in verse 12, they're already doing this, he also says in verse 13 that this was the common practice in the Old Testament. Look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Now probably he's alluding to two things here. He's alluding both to the Old Testament where the temple priests got to benefit from their service in the temple but also to the pagan temples in Corinth. He said even the pagans do this. They work in the temple. They sacrifice in the temple. They get to take a pound of meat home with them. They don't labor for nothing. And then finally in verse 14, he says, Jesus himself said this. This is kind of the ultimate trump card that he throws on the, on the table. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, where did Jesus say that? Because he doesn't quote from Jesus here. Well, I think he probably is making reference to Matthew 10.10 or Luke 10.7, where Jesus says that the laborer is worthy of his hire. Now, let me show you two other places in the New Testament where Paul underscores this idea in other letters that he writes. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy and chapter 5. We see the same reasons being given. And he even quotes the very same passage. Although he also quotes Jesus in this passage. Here he's talking about financial support of pastors or elders in the church. In verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That is, not just appreciation and esteem, but also financial support. That's what he means by double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he gives the reason why here in verse 18. He says, For the Scripture says, here's Deuteronomy 25, 4, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There he quotes from Luke 10, 7. So he's quoting from the Old Testament and the words of Jesus to support the idea that elders who rule well, who labor in preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor. And then also he says in Galatians, the book of Galatians, chapter 6, this very thing to the Galatian church when he writes to them. So if you'll turn there, turn back to the book of Galatians. In chapter 6, oftentimes this passage is quoted in reference to, you know, general principle of reaping what you sow and, you know, don't sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption, you know, live ethically, live morally, live holy. But actually the context is about paying and supporting laborers in the gospel. And that if you generous, are generous toward them, they will be free to preach and teach in a way that benefits you. So if you sow bountifully to them, they will, you will reap bountifully from them. That's his point. So look at verse 6. He says, let the one who is taught, that is Christians in the church, 
the word, taught the word, share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So again, he's underscoring this principle of financial support for elders to the church at Galatia and in his writings to Timothy, which he would then pass on to the church at Ephesus. So we've got this a common, common teaching of the Apostle Paul that the reasons that he should be paid is because, first of all, everyday life shows it. Second of all, the Old Testament teaches it. Third of all, pagan sacrificing, pagan, uh, pagan priests in the temple get, get it. The Old Testament temple system offered it. They're already doing it with other ministers, and Jesus himself taught it. Now, we might think, Paul is sharing all of this because he wants them to cut him a check, right? He's sharing all of this to put a big old guilt trip on them that they owe back pay serious. They are indebted, and they better start working it out because they owe him a ton. That's not why he's writing this. He's writing this to show them that he has given all of that up for their sake. He is not, and he's not saying that to guilt them. He's going to say, say here, just going forward, I wouldn't take it from you if you begged me. I would rather die than take an offering from you. And he's not saying that out of self-pity. He's saying that because that was part of his call. All right, and we're going to see that as we go through. So now we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about Paul's refusal to take pay. Paul's refusal to be financially supported. Now, just to be clear, Paul doesn't assume this is the best way. He commands churches to support their elders if they're able to do so. Right? So he's not saying that all elders, if they were really super spiritual, they would not be paid of the gospel. He's saying that in the Corinthian context, when he was planting that church as an apostle, he knew the Corinthian climate. He knew all the, all the speakers, all the stuff. Corinth was known for being a place in which uh, speaking was subsidized by money. There were people who were sharing in the temple. There were people who were sharing in the streets. And it was all funded by money. And Paul's saying, if I'm going to plant a church in Corinth, I can't be seen like that. I need to set myself apart as someone who is not being supported so they can't say, well, he's doing that because he's getting paid. Because he knew that would undermine the progress of the gospel in the city of Corinth. That's why he did it, just to be clear. But we're going to see that as we walk through verses 15 through 27. So let's look at the three reasons Paul refuses to exercise his rights to be paid by the Corinthians. Now, here's what Paul's strategy is. He wants to use his Christian liberty, that is his legitimate right to be paid, to become a slave to all people. He uses his freedom to become a servant. Martin Luther said it this way, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And yet, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Right? So we are free. Are we not free in Christ? Yes. We are free under his lordship, subject to no one else. And yet, we're also the perfectly dutiful servants of everyone because we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a, sub, who was a, who was a servant to all. So Paul's strategy is servanthood. His strategy is love. His strategy is forsaking his legitimate rights to serve the Corinthians. In fact, this is the very thing he commands the Galatians to do 
in terms of using their Christian liberty and their freedom. When he says in Galatians 5.13, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. Paul's doing that. And in the rest of this chapter, he's going to give three reasons why, even though he has a right to financial support for his ministry, he refuses to exercise those rights. So let's look at the first one. Let's read verses 15 to 18 again. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. What we just talked about. He's not writing to get a check from them. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel, which would be to be paid. So here's the first reason Paul refuses to exercise his rights in these ways. To fulfill his call to preach the gospel without charge. He was called by Jesus to preach the gospel without charge. Paul makes it clear that refusing his rights to financial support from the Corinthians flows from his call to preach the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from other parts of Scripture that Paul did receive some financial support from churches for preaching the gospel. We read in 2 Corinthians 11, 7, and 8 that he got support. We read in Philippians chapter 2 and chapter 4 that he received support. But here's the key point. It appears that Paul always took great care to make sure that he never received financial support from the Christians in the, the immediate geographical location where he was working. He would receive support from outside where he was working, but he would not receive support from those to whom he was, with whom he was working. It seems to always have come from other people in other churches, not the ones he was seeking to reach. Now, why did he do this? Because Paul tried to not give the Corinthians any reason to think he was in it for the money. 1 Thessalonians 2 says the following, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So he said, I work night and day. And it wasn't a pretext for greed. It wasn't an attempt to get an offering from you. It was pure, sincere. God is our witness. We were doing it because we love the gospel and because we loved you. So that was his first reason to refuse his call to preach the gospel, or sorry, to fulfill his call to preach the gospel without charge. Secondly, his second reason for, for his refusal to be financially supported by the Corinthians was to win people to Christ. To win people to Christ. Look at verses 19 to 22. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, there's the first group of people, in order to win Jews. 
to those under the law. There's the second group of people. I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, there's the third group. I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak. There's the fourth group. I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So why is he doing this? To see people saved. To see people reconciled to God. To see people embrace the gospel. Simply put, Paul is doing everything he can, in every way he can, with every means that he can, to not give any reason for anyone to reject the gospel on his account. He's removing every stumbling block he can. Now, he's not, he's not watering down the message of the gospel. He's not removing the offense of the gospel. He's removing reasons for people to be offended with him in terms of the way he would live and behave. He's a wonderful, godly example here, isn't he? Don't you just love Paul more? You just see his sincerity, his love for Jesus, his passion to serve people. Oh, I love the Apostle Paul. And Paul is engaging in what some might call contextualization which is simply put, it's just a big word for taking into consideration the cultural context in which you seek to communicate the gospel. And he does that with the Jews, with the Gentiles, with those under the law, with those outside the law. He's always thinking, how can I accommodate them? How can I make it easier, quote-unquote, for them to receive me? Not necessarily receive the gospel. Gospel's not any easier to receive unless the Holy Spirit's working. But we can be easier to receive, <laughs> right? We can make it harder for us to be received by people. And Paul's saying, I don't want to give any reason for people to not have to receive me. So I'm willing to let go of rights that they might be offended by if I could give up those for the sake of the gospel. So let's start with what he did with the Jews. How did he give up his rights? How did he become as a Jew to win the Jews? Well, we see this at least three times in the book of Acts. For instance, in Acts 21, when Paul goes to Jerusalem after speaking with the leaders in the church, he discovers that there were some who were accusing him of preaching against the law of Moses. He doesn't really like the Old Testament. He doesn't like the Jewish laws. He seems to preach against them. So what did Paul do? Well, some of the church were about to undergo some sort of, it what appears to be a Nazarite vow, maybe shaving the head or some pure purification rite, some sort of Jewish purification rite. And Paul agrees to undergo that Jewish purification rite and even to pay the tax that was due for it. He didn't have to do that, but why did he do it? He did it so that they wouldn't be offended by him so that he could preach the gospel to them. All right, what about Acts 18? Well, in Acts 18, a vow was being taken to shave his head, and that was fulfilled. And he was willing to accommodate this Jewish ceremony. And then in the opening verses of Acts 16, when he was ready to embark on his second missionary journey, he wants to take a young man with him. A young man named Timothy, who was a Gentile. And that young man had not been circumcised. And he knew that circumcision, not in the terms of salvation, because he takes that up in Galatians and he's going to have none of that, but where it will allow him to preach the gospel and not make them unnecessarily offended he circumcised Timothy and he took him along. So to the Jews, he became as a Jew, as one under the law. To the Gentiles, as he says in verse 21, those without the law, 
he identified with them by showing himself to be truly free from ceremonial and civil requirements of Judaism. He didn't take any advantage of all his Jewish heritage at their expense. He never lorded his spiritual advantages over them. He was willing to not eat kosher. He was willing to partake of their customs inasmuch as they did not betray Christ. He was willing to accommodate them. And then in verse 22, with regard to those who are weak in conscience, he was willing to act and live as if he himself was weak for their sake. He was willing to eat no meat to gain them for Christ. He was willing to forgo his liberties in this area. He was willing to be vegetarian among those that would have a problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols for the sake of preaching the gospel to them. So Paul's point is his whole reason for doing this is to make it easier for him to get access to them so that he could preach the gospel to them. I encourage you to talk to our missionaries. Talk to the bald ones while they're here. Talk to the dames while they're here. And talk about the importance of accommodation for the sake of the mission of the gospel. They have had to give up so many legitimate freedoms that they would have in order to reach people for the gospel. See, we don't feel it as much because we live... in the same society that most of us either grew up in or around people that we have share lots of customs with. But where you are in a completely different culture and where you have to accommodate things, you will, the less you're able to accommodate, the more your conscience bothers you because of those accommodations, the less effective you will be as a missionary. You will not be able to preach the gospel to as many people. I heard one story I was reading in a book recently. I may have shared this with you a couple of years ago when I was preaching on the conscience. But there was one missionary who left the West and was seeking to plant a church in Africa. And among that particular area of Africa, you, you almost had to live on agriculture. You had to, grow a farm, you had to plant a farm and you had to live of that farm. And, and, and it was common um, to, to, to plant along the edges and that people who walked along the edges of your property were free to pick any fruit that they had along the edges of the property. It was just considered common property. If you planted along the edge, you were required to do that. You had to plant along the edge. Well, this Western missionary was not aware of that. And they got very upset as they saw day after day their their apples or whatever they were growing just being picked off the vine. They were thinking, the thieves in this culture... I mean, they just steal and steal and steal. He's preaching about that in the churches, and another local had to come to them and say, brother, this is not theft. This is generosity. This is what we do. You think of the gleaning laws in the Old Testament, right, how they were required to do that for the sake of the poor. He's like, this is very common. And if your conscience is going to bother you about people just coming and taking your stuff, you're not going to be a very effective missionary here. So again, that was a right, a legitimate right. Do they have the right to eat those on the outside of their vineyard? Yeah, of course but they're giving up that right for the sake of the people that they love and are trying to reach because of a common custom in their culture. These would have been things we would have to wrestle through. So love for Christ and love for people should lead us to go as far as we can in obedience to Jesus, never violating our obedience to Christ for the purpose of seeing people saved. So just to be clear, accommodation like this is not about changing the gospel. And it's not about removing the offense or the difficult truths of the gospel. It's about identifying with the people we are trying to reach with the gospel. So it's not an excuse for becoming like the world. A lot of people read this passage and are like, yeah, I'm just going to go to a bar and get drunk to reach drunks. Uh, No, not necessarily. 
That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about accommodating people who would needlessly be offended by our customs. It's not about making a seeker-sensitive church. It's about making a seeker-sensible church, right? It's about not making Christianity look like the culture. It's not marketing. It's not being edgy or trendy for the gospel. It's about, ironically, marketing and being edgy and trendy is far more self-serving than it is other-serving. It's about taking away your freedoms, your rights, for the sake of other people. To be an effective missionary, as I just said, one must be flexible, one who's willing to accommodate without compromise, and a servant of all for the sake of the gospel. Just think of the priority of learning language. How much do you have to give of your own time and energy and money to learn another person's language? When so much missions work today is just saying, oh, you don't have to learn the language. Baloney. How are you going to share deep truths of the gospel with people if you don't learn their language, if you just have a basic understanding of their language? So, now that's not saying that everyone, every missionary is unfaithful if they choose not to learn the language. That's, That's dependent on context. But to lean into learning the language and just try to learn it well for the sake of the gospel is a way of giving up our rights so that we can accommodate ourselves to them. So why did Paul do this? Well, we've said it. Because by any means, all means possible, he might save some. He knew he wasn't going to save all. But he says in verse 19, that I might win more of them. So he's only going to save some, but he's going to win more by doing this than if he didn't. See the dimensions of human responsibility there and divine sovereignty? He knows he's not ultimately responsible for salvation. He knows he can't save everybody. He knows God has to save people. He's not unrealistic that everybody's going to be saved because he makes accommodations. He says, I'm going to save some. And by accommodating myself in this way, I'm going to save more than if I didn't do this. So notice how modest he is about his goals and yet how driven he is to become all things to all people by all possible means that he might win them. Why does he do this? Well, finally, he does this to be a partaker of the gospel himself. Look at verses 23 to 27. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Now, what does he mean by that? That I want to share with the Corinthians and the people I'm trying to reach in the blessings of the gospel. Well, surely he wants to share in the joys of the gospel with them, right? Is there any greater joy on earth than seeing someone we love come to Christ? No. There's there's few joys that match that. And there's few joys that match it in heaven either. Luke 15.10, right? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's a party in heaven when someone gets saved. And if one conversion sets heaven ablaze with joy, should it not thrill and motivate us too? Paul says it's, it, it's, it's a joy to see people come to Christ. But he also, not only in seeing the joy of seeing them saved, he's also being blessed by the joy of enjoying Jesus with them in their salvation. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. But the clearest is that the clearest joy he has, he says in verse 25, notice he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
He says, I'm working for an imperishable wreath. Now, he's alluding to the Olympic Games here in which they would be crowned with a wreath for winning the race. What is this wreath? While Paul does not mention wreath anywhere else in his letters, he does tell us about a prize he desires. He says to the Thessalonians, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown before our Lord? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And to the church at Philippi, he says, My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. So his crown, his prize, his wreath on the last day will not be something he owns or wears. It will be the lives that he saved and the joy he shared in seeing them come to heaven because of him. And that wreath, unlike any wages or reward we might receive on earth, will live and grow and bloom long into eternity. And he's looking forward to seeing the people that were saved under his ministry rejoicing in Jesus as he rejoices in Jesus and his joy is tripled and doubled and quadrupled in their joy in Jesus. However, not only does he enjoy seeing them receive the gospel, not only does he enjoy seeing their enjoyment of the gospel, but he wants to partake of the gospel with them. He says in verse 26 and 27, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control. I deny the rights that I could have, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, what does he mean by disqualified? A lot of commentators said, say that what he means by disqualified is that he's just not going to get the rewards he would have. Like 1 Corinthians 3. All the rewards he would have are going to be burned up in the fire. They're wood, hay, and stubble. Brothers and sisters, that's not what he's saying. This word disqualified, he uses a number of different times in his letters. I'll give you a couple of examples. 2 Timothy chapter 3. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. These men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified. Not saved. What about Titus 1.16? They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified. Brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying here is that along with the stunning rewards he has, he is also motivated by the reality that if he didn't do exactly what Jesus told him to do, go preach my name among the Gentiles and suffer for my sake. That if he didn't live out his commission, he should have no reason to think he's a follower of Christ to begin with. He's not earning salvation. Let's be clear. He's not earning salvation by planting the church and by not taking the financial benefit. He's showing he's been saved. Does that make sense? So he's saying, if I don't do this, I shouldn't think I'm saved. I should think I'm disqualified. If I don't run this race that Jesus has given me, I won't partake with the gospel with you. He's deadly serious. Now, does that mean Paul doesn't believe in eternal security? Once saved, always saved? Of course he believes that. He just doesn't believe he would be saved if he disobeyed Christ for his whole life. And you shouldn't believe that either. 
If you say, I'm not going to follow you, Jesus, and walk away and think you're saved, you're not saved. You're not saved, because saved people follow Christ. Not perfectly, of course, but really. We want to do the will of God. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Paul's saying, I'm doing the will of Jesus. I'm doing what he told me to do. I'm planting the church. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm preaching the gospel. So he did everything he could, not only to see them saved and to enjoy that, to be blessed by that, but to be a partaker in the gospel himself. This is why he says in verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What's a woe? That's a pronouncement of judgment on yourself, right? He says, woe to me if I don't do this. You remember those woes that Jesus pronounced on the Pharisees in Matthew 23? Woe to you, woe to you. He's judging them. He's saying, you're under the judgment of God. So Paul's saying, I should consider myself under the judgment of God if I don't preach the gospel. So that's his conclusion. And we should say, yeah, of course you would be disqualified if you didn't do that. You didn't run the race according to the rules. You made your own way. You tried to find a shortcut in. Right? So Paul's taking this. Now, he's totally convinced Jesus has saved him. Right? But he's working out his salvation with fear and trembling. Because he knows it's God who works within him, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see how seriously, seriously secure the Christian life is? Christian life is so secure. You are so secure in Christ if you are serious about following Christ. <laughs> You're so secure. And when you start drifting, something should come into your soul saying, what if I'm not the real thing? What if I'm not the real thing? And that should be like, oh, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life, and you prove you're the genuine article again by coming back to Christ. So that's all we're saying. He's not saved by his works. He's not saved by his ministry. He's not saved because of his ministry. He's running the race to show he's saved. That's a world of difference. He's showing that Jesus has saved me. How do you prove it? By doing what he said. So let me wrap up here with two brief applications. While fear was not Paul's ultimate motivation or his sole motivation or even his greatest motivation, it was a motivation and it should be with us as well. Because even though we're not called to be an apostle, we are called to live a radical, lowercase r, doesn't mean you all have to go sell all your cars and home and move to you know, Abu Dhabi tomorrow. But we're to live a countercultural, rights-giving up, loving, serving, Jesus-like life for the sake of the gospel in other people's lives. Now, unless you think that's only Paul's call, I want you to look at two verses that he's going to press it on us this morning. And he's going to say, you do that too. You don't have to plant churches like I plant churches, but you need to live to reach others with the gospel like I live and reach others with the gospel. Look at verse chapter 10, verses 31 and following. We'll get more to this next week. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We know that verse, right? We quote that verse a ton. I quote it almost at every meal I eat. Lord, we want to eat and drink. This meal to your glory. It's fine. But what's the immediate context of doing all to the glory of God? What does it mean to do all to the glory of God? It means to do everything within your power to reach others with the gospel. Notice the next verse. See, keep reading. Don't, don't proof text stuff. Okay? Read the Bible in context and ask, what is this verse meaning? Okay, so read the next verse. Give no offense 
to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. That's what Paul's trying to do, right? Give no offense. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1. This chapter heading is not helpful to be broken here. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what's his argument here? You do everything within your power to reach other people with the gospel. Now that doesn't mean every conversation you have have has to be the gospel in it. But brothers and sisters, why are we here on earth? Why are we here still? Why are we in Owensboro? Everybody reached with the gospel? Everybody believed the gospel? No. And you're not responsible to reach everyone in Owensboro for the gospel, but you are to make sure that everyone within your sphere hears the gospel from you. It is your responsibility to share the gospel within your sphere, and you should take it that seriously because it's what it means to imitate Paul who imitates Christ. And this is the motivation, isn't it, brothers? What did, and sisters, what did Jesus give up for your salvation? Everything. He gave up His rights, the glory of heaven. He became your servant. He died on the cross. Is it too much to open your mouth at a dinner table and preach the gospel to your family? Is it too much to preach the gospel to those in your workplace to say, hey, can we grab a meal this week? I'd like to talk to you something on my heart. Hey, have you ever thought about spiritual things? Brothers and sisters, we are far too quiet about the gospel. We need a greater zeal for evangelism in this church. Do not, do not hide behind your Calvinism. They will not be saved if you don't share the gospel with them, and you have no reason to think they will. It is our responsibility to take the gospel. Woe to us if we do not preach the gospel, Paul says. Now again... You're not a church planter. You're not an apostle. But does Paul not say that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are to do all to the glory of God? And that includes doing everything we can to reach others. Certainly that includes praying for them. Asking God, God, please save so-and-so. And then saying, God, if you are willing, would you open a door and make me the answer to my own prayer? And so, brothers and sisters, I don't want to say this in a way to guilt us or to make us feel ashamed. That's not the motivation. I just want to lay upon us this unbelievable privilege. Do you know the privilege we have to be an ambassador of the King of Kings? You are not a sideline, marginal, unimportant Christian to the kingdom of God. You are on the A-team, front line, wherever you find yourself. You are starting lineup. There is no B league. There's no minor league. There's no, well, I'm not very good at it. You don't have to be good at it. Invite somebody to read the gospel of Mark with you. Let the gospel do the gospeling. And ask them, what do you think about this Jesus? You don't have to be an expert. We will equip you. We have so many tools. We have three circles and we have two ways to live, and we have all these little gospel tracks, and you can just share your story and weave Jesus in and tell people what he's done for your soul. There's so many ways we can share the gospel with others. Students, young people, believers, your class is not there by accident. How cool is it to hear of Taylor and Logan leading a Bible study in the HCS middle school to their peers? 
It's because they're saved. They know they're supposed to reach their peers with the gospel. That's what happens when people get saved. And so let them serve as an example. 13-year-olds showing me up. I don't know when the last time I led an evangelistic Bible study was. But let's let their example provoke us to good deeds. And let's follow hard after our Lord Jesus. What might he do, brothers and sisters, through us? I don't know about you. I am so prone to think that the gospel has no power. I forget the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God. It's the most powerful message in the world, as we've sung this morning. Above all earthly powers, your children who don't know the Lord, your co-workers, your extended family, your neighbors, your friends who don't know the Lord, you think, ah, oh, they, they've heard it from me before, they won't, or uh, that, Pastor Mark, you don't know the circumstances. And Yeah, I don't. But I also don't care about the circumstances, ultimately, right? And you shouldn't either, because you know that if circumstances were critical and ultimate in your life, you wouldn't be saved either. I wouldn't be. Non-Christian home, no gospel access, Christian pastor. Doesn't make any sense. But the gospel has power. And it broke into my heart and saved me the first time I heard it. And it, it could have taken you all 50 times. That's okay. It could take another person a hundred times. But let it not be so that anyone that within our sphere that we love goes to hell because we were too ashamed or too nervous to share the gospel with them. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us boldness. Father, thank you for the immense privilege of being communicators of the gospel. That all of us, well, most of us, are not called to stand behind a pulpit like this and preach to a congregation. We are called to love those within our sphere, to open our mouths, and to talk about Jesus, to tell people about our Savior, to tell people how they can be reconciled to God. Lord, may we never grow hard or indifferent to the eternity that awaits our friends and our family. Lord, may we never grow callous or indifferent or, or lack trust in your power to save. Lord, I confess I am so often guilty of lacking trust in the power of the gospel. Lord, would you fill us with confidence this morning? Would you help us to see that the gospel is the power of God, that it's able to save? And may we see in the remainder of this year and the next year and the years to come your grace at work through our open mouths and open hearts and open homes and open dinner tables and open Bibles. May through that, may we see one after another come to Christ, profess faith in Christ, get baptized, join the church, and begin to follow our Savior. Lord, could there, there would be more joy in Heritage Baptist Church over that than anything else you could possibly do. So, Lord, would you give that to us, and would you make us faithful? We ask this for your glory, that we would do all things, whether we eat or drink or share the gospel, to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters.